Welcome to the Future of Medicine podcast, where we believe that feeling great and living a long time is possible and that your healthcare should help you get there. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Wenzel. My hope is simple, that this show will help you along your journey to becoming the healthiest, strongest, and most powerful version of you possible. Now, let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody. Before we jump into this uh, episode of the Future of Medicine podcast, Jen and I are going to be going over in a very high-level cancer screenings that you cannot overlook while pursuing new fancy technical advancements. And there are screenings about the most common cancer in men, the most common cancer in women, and the number two cancer killer on the planet. And we have very readily available, very simple to acquire, very inexpensive tests that can screen and identify this early that just might save your life. I hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Future of Medicine podcast. And I'm your host, Dr. Wenzel, joined as always by the lovely and talented Jen Justice. Hey there. Hey, are you pumped? I'm pumped. I'm always pumped to do these with you. I love it too. This episode is uh, called The Cancer Screenings You Must Get. Uh, for those of you who follow the content that we create regularly, just a few months ago, we did a series on rethinking uh, cancer screening, old way versus new way. You know, you might be saying, well, why in the world are we doing another cancer screening uh, episode? And really, my thinking is to take a totally different approach. Um, instead of looking at all of the high-flying tip of the razor cutting edge kind of latest and greatest things, I felt a conviction to come back and cover the things that, although those are amazing and promising and will likely change cancer screening forever, don't miss the things that are right in front of you that are readily available for most every person and you don't need a fancy concierge service to get it. Mm -hmm. Don't sleep on these basic things because these relatively widely available, well-established screening modalities save lives. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna talk about three specific cancers, breast, prostate, and colon. And you might say, why do you choose those? Quite simply, it's practical to talk about them. Prostate cancer is the most common cancer in men. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. And colon cancer is the number two cancer killer of all humans. Mm -hmm. And we have great, not perfect, but we have great, available, inexpensive screening tests that can save your life. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, let's start, Jen, with breast cancer. Okay. Help us think about what it is, why it's important, what we need to know about screening in today's world, uh, and maybe some situational variables that we might need to consider. Uh, sure. Well, I, I don't think I would be remiss without saying that probably a lot of us, I'm generalizing here, have some sort of experience with this. Um, cancer in general, maybe, um, but specifically breast cancer for myself. My mom had it. I know we've talked about this before, but your wife has had it in the past and beat it, beat it twice. I mean, amazing. Um, 
before so, the age of 40. Yeah. Which kind of flies in the face of some of these recommendations. Uh-huh. Yeah. And but my mom had it in postmenopause, which is a whole other issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so two ends of the spectrum there. But it's, as you alluded to before, the most common cancer in women in the United States. So, it, you know, it beats out lung, uh, probably ovarian, those type of cancers. Um, about 13% of all women will be diagnosed in their lifetime. That's like that's a lot <laughs> of women. No, I mean, I think um, we need to think about that. Yeah. I mean, what does that mean in English? It's it not inconsi- one, insignificant. One to two women in every cluster of 10 mm-hmm. in her lifetime will have the diagnosis of breast cancer that she's going to have to manage. Yeah. It's a big deal. It is. And the the number of new cases last year alone was around 290,000. Um, 290,000 new cases, new cases. It's mm-hmm. a lot. It's a lot of, it's a lot of humans and 43,000 deaths from breast cancer last year alone. So, mm. you know, those, uh, ended in an unfortunate, um, situation. And as you said, about one in three, all, all new female cancers, about 30% or one in three are breast cancer. So this is a big deal. Yeah, so if a woman's going to get cancer, mm-hmm. one in three new cancers in women is breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Like answering the question, why is this important? Yeah. Because it's, because it is. And you have to wonder or ask yourself, is this because, because our screening is more prevalent and better you know it, it kind of gets better every year um i hope so i mean when we talk about cancer whatever cancer it may, may be and we talked about this when we did the the last cancer episode is timing is ed- everything if you mm-hmm. can catch this early and when it's treatable um your odds of of beating it and, and outliving it are much greater um, so even more important to get your screening tests and get them on time and make sure you follow through with them. Yeah, I suppose there are different, there are potentially different perspectives one could have on screening. But I can only speak for me, us, mm-hmm. in the way that we practice. Our North Star is for our to help our patients live as long a life as possible Mm -hmm. at the highest level possible. Mm -hmm. And we talk a lot about cancer. We talk a lot about heart disease. We talk a lot about dementia. Why? Mm -hmm. Because those are three of the biggest reasons that people leave the earth. And that just happens to be aligned with what our goals are that we need to have some thought around these three things. And in the bucket of cancer, as a female, this is just the point of view of one guy. I don't think there's a more important conversation to be having right. than breast cancer, mm-hmm. given how uh, prevalent it is. And although you could debate yeah, well, we're diagnosing more. Does that really change any outcome? The bottom line is 40, what, 40, how many thousand? 43. 43,000 women lost their life last year to breast cancer. These are wives. These are moms. These are sisters. These are, you know. And these numbers aren't going down. Right. Um, 
Now, certainly better screening, we're going to see new cases numbers going up. Mm -hmm. But the hope is, is that the mortality goes down. Correct. Mm -hmm. Because as with all cancers, certainly the three that we're going to talk about today, timing is the game. Mm -hmm. Speed to a diagnosis gives you opportunity to evaluate, think, and explore optionality that if done appropriately should dramatically improve the outcomes mm -hmm. of the journey. Yep. When you're late, all that means is you have to make decisions in a tighter runway. Mm -hmm. And for many women and any cancer that's found late, there's just no runway, Yeah, which means you have a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to find cancer, but finding it early is absolutely if you're going to have it in your life, you want lots of runway to know how to think about it. Yeah. Um, what do women need to know about um, screenings that are available today for them? Well, just the, at a high level. The most available and obviously is a screening mammogram um, covered by insurance takes very little time. Mm -hmm. Um really low cost to you. So that's an amazing benefit of that. Basically, it's an x-ray picture of your breast um, and will show any tumors or abnormalities lurking there. It's a great place to start. Um, should anything suspicious come from that, then we move on to more of a diagnostic mammogram, possibly a biopsy, mm -hmm. maybe even a breast MRI. It just kind of mm -hmm. depends. If you have very dense breasts, sometimes a breast MRI will give us a better picture of what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and they also Younger, dense mm -hmm, breasts. Mm -hmm. And they also have um, 3D mammograms now. That's the one that I choose to get annually. Mm -hmm. um, it's done at different arc levels um, with the technology and it shows more of a 3D picture of the breast, a little bit more detailed. So that's becoming more common now too. Um, but the time frames for screening, <laughs> it's interesting and we, we will link this document, but um, they're, and we kind of talked about it in the last podcast too, but they're all over the board. So we have American Cancer Society, we have um, American Association of Family Physicians, we have the CDC, we have all of these- Radiology. People. Radiology, the ra yeah. Everybody has an opinion mm -hmm. on how often you should mm -hmm. do these things. And this is, you know, again, where we differ in our practice, where we're not doing population health. We can use these guidelines to help us with your family history, with your specific mm -hmm. situation, determine when we should start these mammograms. But ideally, typically we say annually starting at age 40, um, you know, we can look in and say, are you average risk? Are you high risk? If you're more um, average or high risk, say you've had a family member that had breast cancer early, like before mm -hmm. 30, you want to start those mammograms earlier. Yeah. Um, Generally 10 years earlier yep. than the youngest diagnosed family member. Correct. So if you had a, a mom or an aunt who had breast cancer at 38, mm -hmm. in your late 20s, you need to be starting these screenings. Yeah. Um, and yeah. other risk factors, are you a smoker, are you obese, um, are you, you know, do you have the BRCA genes, mm -hmm. you know, um, BRCA genes is what we call them for short, but some women know this, they know yep. this about their family history, yep. they know this about their personal history, mm -hmm. so I put you at a higher risk and you mm -hmm. really need to start thinking proactively and getting these screenings a little bit earlier. What about self-breast exam? What, where are we at with that? I don't know, I think the jury's out with that. I still feel that they're valuable. Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel 
But the good thing about the mammogram is that it can detect a smaller growing cancer or smaller cancer up to three years before you can actually feel it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I think they're valuable. What's your opinion? Yeah, I, I, I'm not qualified to give an official opinion. I can just tell you how I think about it. In head-to-head against some of these fancy imaging, I don't think it holds a candle. Correct. But I don't... My wife doing her own self-breast exam saved her life twice. She was first diagnosed at 36, I believe. I mean, she's four years from insurance saying it's okay to pay for a mammogram. Mm -hmm. I'd be without a wife. Mm -hmm. A large part of me believes that she probably wouldn't have even lived to be 40 Mm -hmm. had we followed standard guidelines. But thank goodness she's self-aware, she's body aware, mm-hmm. she noticed something different, and, and we took action early, and we got some pretty shocking news. Mm-hmm. And then we get through that, and then we find some, she found it again, and we're like, there's no way. <laughs> and then it, yeah, it was bad news again. Mm-hmm. So I'm biased. I think, I think they're most useful in people who either aren't getting routine mammogram imaging or fall outside of the standard begin these imaging studies at this age. Mm-hmm. I think they're far more, um, they're better than not. Yeah, There's gonna be a lot of false positives because mm-hmm. a lot of women have lumpy, bumpy, kind of fibrocystic kind of uh, breast tissue, especially if you're a former athlete and mm-hmm. you've been bumped around, you've got some, so you may go chasing some things. So they're, they're not without, something that need to be managed. There's some downside to doing a lot of these and then a lot of needless biopsies and all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So, I mean, I'm not here to say that everybody needs to do them and they're the Holy grail. I'm just saying they have their place. Mm -hmm. It was similar with my, with my mom. Um, I cannot remember the age that she was diagnosed in her her early fifties, but she was getting dressed and just felt something weird, like up around her armpit. And that's not an area that they would, that they even saw on a mammogram. So she, just found this lump you know it was detectable on ultrasound but not mammogram which is weird but she's alive today because of that i would say if you're um if you're listening to this and you consider yourself pretty body aware um and a a relatively reliable historian of your own health and your own journey and your own truth Mm -hmm. they're useful Mm -hmm. um but um I also think we have to mention the the men because men do right. have breast tissue, yeah. and so you know, uh, men are not men, totally off the hook. Uh, men are not off the hook, and and they can do mammograms on men, believe it or not. Well, yeah, that's how they find it. They uh-huh. find it the same way. Yeah. So you know, um, again, being body aware and and maybe feeling something strange. Yeah, a man would, would definitely the only gateway into that discovery would be an examination or some sort of asymmetry that's mm-hmm. noticed by themselves in the mirror or a partner like hey what's that spot like right. it looks a little weird there and then then you follow with a mammogram and there it is mm-hmm. and we we do see that um and it's very dangerous mm-hmm. just like um just like for women um so yeah men are not completely off the hook uh and absolutely if you have a family history of male breast cancer um you need to be very proactive mm-hmm. Let's slide into the second cancer we're going to talk about, which is prostate cancer. 
far and away the most common cancer in men, uh, something that we unfortunately have to deal with all the time. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I feel like we have our head around it as a disease, um, clinically, Mm -hmm. you and I, um, how to hunt for it, how to identify early, early indicators that it may be at play that would give us lots of runway uh, to intervene and get good outcomes. Um, Similar to breast cancer, there was 268,000 new cases last year. Um, About one in eight men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer during their lifetime. Um, I think the saying was 80% of men, 80 have prostate cancer. (laughs) Like if you, it's one of those things where if you live long enough time in residence, the area under the curve, a prostate into the eighth decade of life, it's pretty likely that a prostate cancer is going to develop in Mm -hmm. there. The cool thing about getting prostate cancer, if there is something cool, um, in your eighties is that you'll likely die with it, not from it. Mm Mm-hmm. Men who run into problems with prostate cancer typically are being diagnosed in their 40s, 50s, maybe early 60s. Mm-hmm. This is a real problem because those are the real aggressive forms. They mm-hmm. show up really early and they just take off. Yeah. If it doesn't come on the scene till your 80s, it's unlikely to create some problems. Yeah. Um, why is it important? Again, as, as we talked about with breast, timing is everything. Early, 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 early detection is everything because you go from... Um, a prostate surgery where you remove your prostate surgery, your prostate, remove your prostate and the cancer is out of your body to then being late and you still have to remove the prostate, the source of the tumor, but it's spread elsewhere um, and you can get very bad outcomes Mm -hmm. once it's spread. Um, What we need to know. So there's there's a huge misconception in the male community around prostate health. Everybody is afraid of prostate cancer, knows about it, doesn't want it. But very few younger men in their 40s and 50s are getting their prostate checked because they think it has to do with uh, a digital rectal exam. Mm. And it's... It's very intimidating. Yeah. It's scary. I mean, it, it's, it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a digital rectal exam still has its place in the medical the physical exam of certain things, but it, it is not the ideal screening mechanism for prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. We have it's a really very subjective, right? It's very subjective. <laughs> you know, mm. um, it's, it, it's operator dependent. Yep. Um, and it's just not reliable. And it's not something I would ever for myself or anyone I cared about or anyone I cared for, it is not the way we diagnose and say your prostate is good or not by a digital rectal exam. Mm-hmm. We do a prostate-specific antigen, a PSA. This is a very, very specific um, marker that comes from a simple blood draw, non-fasting blood work that shows inflammation. Mm-hmm. It's sensitive for everything and specific for nothing, which makes it a really, really good screening tool because anything that's going on will kick off PSA in the bloodstream. Um, And if there's no PSA kicked off in the bloodstream, that means nothing's going on. Mm -hmm. As a general rule, we like to say that PSAs less than four are not cancer, although you and I both know all too well that isn't always the case. That is not always the case. (laughs) For population health, I guess that's a reasonable recommendation, but I, I would submit that it's the rate of rise year over year 
as opposed to the absolute value that matters exponentially more. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have eyes on these things, you can see somebody go from a one to a 2.5. You say, oh yeah, well, it's still only about halfway to the upper limits of normal. And I would submit, yeah, but at two and a half doublings mm-hmm. um, year over year, why is it rising that fast? We need to look a little further. In that scenario, or if there's some elevated PSA, traditionally, we would go right to a prostate biopsy, mm-hmm. which again, probably is what in a population health-based setting, it's what gets paid for, it's what's on the protocol, and if this, then that, and it's what a lot of men get. Um, it's not what we do. Mm-hmm. We move men right to a prostate MRI. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, there are some needless prostate biopsies. And I don't, I do have a prostate, and I've never had a biopsy, but I can assure you I don't want one if I don't need one. And a prostate MRI can can show down to about one millimeter of detail whether this is there's something that looks suspicious. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes what we find is it's just BPH, just mm-hmm. a big swollen prostate firing off some PSA. Sometimes it's something called prostatitis. could be uh, an infection mm-hmm. um, that can be treated with some antibiotics. Um, then after the MRI, if there's a suspicious lesion, we will move to a biopsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when, when backing up for a minute, when should men start these PSA tests? I mean, we're a little bit more proactive because mm-hmm. a lot of our men opt in for testosterone replacement therapy, and right. we have to check that along with their testosterone levels. But in a general setting, is it age 50? No, no. Earlier than that? Yeah, I mean, I would say at least 40 once mm-hmm. a year. Um, I mean... What and it's a blood test, a PSA blood mm-hmm. test. Yeah. I'm not sure what the right answer on the test is. I can tell you in our world, the way we operate, that if there is a man, an adult man, who's coming into our world for care, we are getting an annual PSA mm-hmm. just to establish a baseline. Right, right. Because of the rate of rise being my kind of my first early indicator that something is going on, the longer I have data points reflecting what a true baseline is, the better optics I have on a rise and, and the significance of that. Mm-hmm. But if historically you kind of bounce around with a little bit of this, that's your baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I only have a singular data point, it's hard to know. Yeah. So it helps with the joint decision-making to be a little bit more of a evidence-based decision-maker, mm-hmm. you know, data-driven. Um, I would recommend over 40, every man needs a baseline PSA. Because mm-hmm. these are, in your 40s, and 50s are where early prostate cancers that are aggressive and kill men, it's where they show up. Yeah. And it's inexpensive. I mean, it's nothing. A PSA it's, test may be 50 bucks max. I don't know. I, I have no idea what they cost, but it's nominal. Yeah. Uh, and it should be part of your annual mm-hmm. blood work screening, no doubt about it. What about it. A, a Gleason score? I've heard of that before. Is that part of the so a Gleason score biopsy process? Or? Yeah. So when when you <coughs> find a spot that needs to be biopsied and you do the biopsy and the tissue goes off to pathology and the pathologist brings the report back and says yes this is in fact cancer, what the pathologist will also do is assign it a Gleason score, uh, and the score effectively is a is a combination of a couple variables. But for the sake of this talk it basically tells you how aggressive this tumor is likely to behave based on the characteristics that the pathologist is seeing. Mm -hmm. And the higher that number, the more aggressive. The lower 
the less aggressive it looks. Mm -hmm. um, and what we tend to find is earlier prostate cancers tend to have high Gleason scores and later in life, like the 80 year old example. Yeah, there's a prostate cancer, but it's a Gleason score of two mm -hmm. or something like it's slow rolling. It mm -hmm. doesn't look it doesn't look aggressive. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have the same features that gotcha. a really aggressive type of um, tumor would have. Uh, what else do I need to say? Oh, family history. One of the things to really look out for here outside of just the greatest risk factor is is age. Mm -hmm. I mean, the older you are, the higher the risk you're going to have it. What we're really concerned about are accelerators of this disease. You know, family history tends to be a strong family history is a great indicator um, of your likelihood of developing a prostate cancer. Um, most of the people that I talk to that are thought leaders in this space seem to believe if you're going to get it, you're going to get it. Mm -hmm. There isn't a ton that you're doing to make it worse. Mm -hmm. And there's not a ton you're doing for prostate health that's making it better as a general rule. I mean, obviously, um, there could be some variables that behaviorally that, that um, you know, lifestyle cho choices and th that could put you at a higher. But as a general rule, folks who are going to get prostate cancer will probably end up with prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not something you've done wrong, mm -hmm. which means just keep eyes on it. Um, so that's what I've got for prostate cancer. It's a simple blood test. Uh, women do not need to get prostate screenings because they don't have prostates. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little different than breast because both men and women have breasts. Mm -hmm. It is not super common for men to get breasts, but it happens more than one would think. Mm -hmm. But women never get prostate cancer because they don't have a prostate. <laughs> so that is a discussion just for men if you're taking notes. Colon cancer is our third cancer we want to talk about, the number two cancer killer on the planet. Jen, mm -hmm. talk to us about colon cancer. Um, well, the good news is, is that uh, dying from colon cancer should be pretty uncommon because um, if you're appropriately risk stratified and you're doing your screening tests, we're going to catch this pretty early and it's a very slow growing cancer. Key word there is should. Should, but right. But it's not. Mm -hmm. which means people aren't being screened. Yeah, yeah. In English, on a bumper sticker, very few people should be dying from colon cancer, but yet it is the number two cancer killer, which means, as a general rule, in the population, very few people are being adequately risk stratified and screened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a major problem. <clears throat> yeah. I was thinking about this as we were prepping for the podcast, but breast cancer can start in primary care with a mammogram order, P prostate cancer can start in primary care with the PSA test. Colon cancer, you, you got to see a GI doctor first. So this is a little different where we loop in mm -hmm. a specialist. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to go get a consult. Mm -hmm. This is a to little This is a little bit more cumbersome of a screening process, yep. right? You There's have more to, layers to it. You have more to go steps. see a GI doctor. You have to get a consultation. Mm -hmm. You have to schedule a colonoscopy from there. So anyway, um, a little bit different there. But traditionally, um, obviously, the colonoscopy is the screening test and Used it's the gold standard. Right. Used to start at age 50, but now they changed the, the standards a few years ago to be 45. So they've yeah, lowered it's just them. been a couple of years, mm -hmm. and I was really proud to, mm -hmm. to hear that they had done that. Because you and I had already been beginning to pound that drum just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Especially with folks with risk factors that you'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, if it's normal, the good news is you don't have to do it for another 10 years. 
Yeah, and, and I was thinking about this uh, a while back with a patient, and we were started doing the math. Like, if you do it at 50 or 45, and you have normal, 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 recommendations now are, by the time you're at 75, if you've never had an abnormal colonoscopy, the recommendation is stop. Mm-hmm. Good. So you're going to get three of them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if everything's normal. Right. So it's not, It's it feels a lot less like, I have to do these forever. <laughs> no, yeah. not really. What are the other options other than a colonoscopy? Well, the gold standard is, is colonoscopy because there's nothing like going all the way in through your colon and examining um, and getting a good idea of mm-hmm. what's going on. Um, it speaks to how slow growing colon cancer is that if it's clear, you can come back in 10, ten years. years. Right. And even if another tum- if, a t- if a tumor has developed somewhere between the day after your colonoscopy was done and it was clear, it's still going to be not far enough along that identification, resection, would not be curative. Mm-hmm. That's the part that like blows my mind. Mm-hmm. So for a colon cancer to go totally unnoticed, we're talking decades. Mm-hmm. It's been in there. Yeah. Um, just get screened. Mm-hmm. But there are some people that colonoscopies, um, it's either their preference, um, which I would try to encourage that person to kind of Rethink it. <laughs> re, re, you know, just just make sure you're giving it enough thought because the benefits of, of going 10 years is, is pretty great. You can do something called a flex sig, which is something a, a colon doctor would do in the office. And they just use a flexible scope uh, and they look at the bottom portion of your colon in the office. You mm. don't need any sedation because mm-hmm. um, that's where the majority of colon cancers are going to happen or within the reach of the flex sig. But that's five years. Mm-hmm. So you get half the, the, the runway there. Um, <clears throat> there are some people that don't tolerate anesthesia. This would be a good idea. There are some people who, uh, for various other reasons, this might be an option. Another option would be what would be coined as a virtual colonoscopy using some fancy CAT scans and mm-hmm. uh, kind of recreating the colon. Um, that's a little newer of a technology, but again, five years. And then we've got some stool studies where we're looking for either uh, DNA of cancer cells or of blood that would indicate. And these are have been shown to be just as effective, but there's a big asterisk on these things. And that is you have to do them every year. Mm-hmm. I did not realize that. If you don't do them every year, because of the nature of you're not looking inside, mm-hmm. by the time a cancer is visualized, there's one timeline. By the time that cancer has been around long enough that it's angry and bleeding and kicking off DNA cells is another timeline. By the time that thing is bleeding, that's pretty far along. Yeah. And this, as you explained to me, this technology is not looking at actual polyps, not looking at your actual tissue. No. I mean, one of the benefits of, of a colonoscopy, of going inside and visualizing everything, is while they're in there, they'll snag off all the polyps that mm-hmm. they see. All cancers originate from polyps, mm-hmm. but not all polyps turn into cancer. And so if you've got some polyps in there, the, col- the GI doc will snip those off, send those off to pathology just to make sure. But because you had them, he'll only give you a five-year runway mm-hmm. on the colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. You'll have to do another one. And so by doing these annual, like it's, it's an acceptable alternative, but you have to do it annually. But you also have to realize that you have no optics mm-hmm. at all 
on what's going on in there in terms of pre-cancer on the horizon. You're totally blind. So like of all of these, I have used the Cologuard in some patients from time to time who are just anti-anesthesia, anti like we're just not doing it. But I never love it. Like I'm never excited about that plan. Yeah. Um, mostly because I feel like every year we have to hope everything's okay. And I have, n- it's a huge blind spot. Mm-hmm. Whereas whatever's in there is in there. I'd like to see it. Mm-hmm. And that's why the colonoscopy is the gold standard. Yeah. Um, and the Cologuard you could get from your primary care physician. Absolutely. You don't necessarily have to go to a, you yeah. would not go to a, a GI doctor for no, that. No, no, you, you would not. You could do the Cologuard. Um, oftentimes where it's a good mechanism, I've seen it applied, like for my own um, practice, patients who move here mm-hmm. and it's time for their colonoscopy, but they're still considering who they want to use, where they want to have it done, mm-hmm. where they're going to be for travel, for work, etc. The Cologuard is a wonderful bridge for a one, two, three year until we, because life sometimes happens mm-hmm. and then like setting up a whole, like the prep and then the half a day of having it done. It can be very disruptive, especially for a lot of our folks who are running companies, yeah. they're running families. It's very disruptive. Mm-hmm. And so this is a nice tool in the tool belt, but it's not the like, it's not the ideal thing, but I'm grateful to have it from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, some known risk factors for colon cancer outside of just being a human. Um, Western diet, clearly mm-hmm. we know that highly processed, low fiber, low nutrient density foods have a tremendous risk profile associated with um, inflammatory, downstream inflammatory uh, processes, um, smoking, uh, obesity, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, any type of chronic inflammatory thing, you're putting yourself at risk for overexposure to chronic inflammation, which mm-hmm. can flip cancerous mm-hmm. in the right person. And then actually alcohol, oh, uh, overindulgence wow. of alcohol hmm. um, has, a, has a risk there of GI. Here's the bottom line, Jen, as we wrap this episode up. Th- this is really um, the message here is don't overlook the things that are right in front of you that are readily available. and shouldn't be cost prohibitive for most people mm-hmm. because you're blinded by the shiny new thing, yeah. which we love to talk about and we're very excited about. There likely will be a day in, in, in the future where we just kind of plug ourselves in and like we can just figure out what's going on and the AI and software will tell us exactly what's going on and we won't have to do all these things. But until George Jetson Day mm. exists at scale, we've got some really thoughtful, great studies great data behind it, great technicians who've been doing this um, that can really help you avoid a bad outcome from breast, colon, and prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. I don't know anybody who's done a good job of preventing those diseases. They seem to happen to who they're going to happen to. The only chance we have is early detection with the right team in place to give a thoughtful co-thinking, co-decision-making plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. Yeah. And, and this is, don't forget the little things while we're chasing the big shiny things. Right. Um, and we spend a lot of time talking about fancy things. Mm-hmm. And these are three not fancy things that could save your life. Yeah. The basics. 
there is an element of like fundamentals mm -hmm. here. Um, and so I was excited to deliver this. I was also a little convicted because I don't feel like I've spent enough time talking about basic things that absolutely are practical mm -hmm. and save lives. Mm -hmm. um, what are your famous last words, Jen? <laughs> Um, <clears throat> I again, just thank you for bringing this to everybody's attention. It seems simple enough, but it's really great information. And um, yeah, I think just get your screenings done. Find your team. Find your team that can That's help it. you. You know, if if you're afraid, if you're fearful, talk it out with your provider. Get some reassurance. It's not as scary as you think. And schedule it. Get it done. It's way scarier in your head than it is in real life, which speaks. I just want to echo that one more time. Yeah. I could care less if you reach out to us and ask us to help you. I, what I want you for the, if you're listening to this, I want you to find your person. I yeah. want you to find your team. You need to have an environment where you're safe to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm a female with a family history of breast cancer, but I'm 37. Look at all these recommendations. They're all over the map. What do I do? Be able to go into that environment and have that conversation with someone who can honor and respect right. your values, your goals. And collectively you can say, you know what? Let's do this. Mm -hmm. And then you both feel good about that. Um, it's just so important. People deserve the opportunity to have these conversations and they're just widely not available. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Okay, Jen. Till next time. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>I want to thank you so much for your attention. Listen, I don't take it for granted. It means the absolute world to me. You can find out more about today's episode at brentwoodmd.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, all the related links to this episode and tons of other resources. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so. And if you've already subscribed, then it would mean so much to me if you left a review. If you think we'd be a good fit to work together or you would just simply like to know more about the concierge services that I provide my private clients, email us at membership at brentwoodmd.com. And now for the obligatory disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or the giving of medical advice as no doctor-patient relationship has been formed. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should seek the advice of their own medical professional providers.